1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45
2: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: For readers of Patrick Radden Keefe's Empire of Pain, which won last year's Bailey Gifford Prize, there's a new book, Whiteout, How Racial Capitalism Changed the Color of Opioids in America, just out from University of California Press. This brilliant book is anchored by interviews, data, and riveting first-hand narratives from three leading experts, Helena Hansen, an addiction psychiatrist, Jules Netherland, a policy advocate, and David Hertzberg, a drug historian. Whiteout is an unflinching account of how racial capitalism is toxic for all of us, revealing how a century of structural racism in drug policy led to the opioid crisis. The authors implicate racially segregated healthcare systems, The Racial Assumptions of Addiction Scientists and Relaxed Regulation of Pharmaceutical Marketing to White Consumers. Whiteout, How Racial Capitalism Changed the Color of Opioids in America. Available now from University of California Press.
2: Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's Art Centre, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Well, I'm fine. Guess what's waiting on my doorstep for when i finished recording this podcast?
3: I, I, I cannot possibly... animal, vegetable or mineral. I have no idea. Vegetable. Oh, plants. Plants. Oh, I know. Pacisandra. Yes, Pakisandras. Mm, so listeners, wonderful.
2: we had to chat, Lucy and I, the other day. We were talking about high level TLS about work, podcast think, yeah. planning <laughs> chat. Yes. Work focused entirely, but it did devolve into about 20 minutes on Pakisandras, immediately making me going order some, which were being sold on a wonderful deal in the bulk. I've got 12 Pakisandras. Oh,
3: ones.
2: that's brilliant. And I, of course, I threw in a lilac tree. What can you do? you've just got
3: to buy the lilac tree they will reward you mine are already sort of regrowing I put them in not long
2: ago they're splendid I've got a very shady spot verging on the slightly boggy are you happy with that I don't know about boggy because my stuff tends
3: to be more dry but basically they cope very very well with shade and they look nice and I think they'll be marvelous I'm I'm very glad you've got them and if it doesn't work it's not my fault just like to put in a disclaimer right Absolutely now. Absolutely
2: <laughs> not your fault. I will have just done it in slightly the wrong way. Right. that's aside, I have to say, I've spent the last few days blissfully back at home after traveling and on a very rare occasion on my own in the house, apart from the cats. And I, I found myself at one point actually correcting an answer on Gardner's Question Time. I oh, said, I don't think good. that's right out loud to a cat. I said, I don't think that's right. <laughs> I wouldn't put it in there. I wouldn't print it then. I've got to stop. I've got bring me back to reality. Tell me what's in this week's paper, Lucy. I'm not sure if that's reality, but it's different. I'm
3: going to bring you back to books. Well, there's lots of things. We've got wonderful stuff coming up, but the lead piece is a wonderful piece by Boris Dralyuk on Bruno Schultz, who in fact has been mentioned, hasn't he, on the podcast recently because we were talking about there's a fairly legendary Complicite production of, what's it called, Street of Crocodiles. Is that right? That's right. So that's a thing to look forward to. There's also a brilliant piece on the fan community and also uh, artistic monsters, of which, alas, there are plenty. There's all sorts of wonderful things. And it occurred to me the other day as well that, oh, by the way, to read these wonderful things, you need to take out a subscription to the TLS, of course, which I'm sure you're all rushing out to do if you haven't already. And it occurred to me, Alex, the other day that it's a month now until Hay Festival, isn't it? It is. You're doing wonderful things. What are you doing there?
2: Yes, I am. I've got a really exciting roster. I'll be talking to Tan Tuan Eng, Fergus Butler-Galley, Maxine Mayfung Chung, Caleb Bazuma Nelson, and then to Douglas Stewart, Elif Shafak and Margaret Atwood about Salman Rushdie's new novel.
3: That will be wonderful and definitely one to get to or to listen to, if possible. Toby Lishtig of this parish. We'll be talking to Eleanor Catton. I'll be talking to Sarah Raven and basically trying not to get her to just solve any problems I've got in my garden, which are many.
2: No, I've done that. She likes it. <laughs> likes it. I, hope,
3: I hope so. I've got a whole raft of new things. <laughs> and there's lots of other wonderful authors and events and podcasts as well. Isn't Dua Leeper going to be there?
2: Oh, don't ask me. I'm old. <laughs>
3: I think she is. She's a pop she star, is. isn't she? She is, but she's also well into her podcast. And very, very big. Reason. She performed at last year's Booker Prize ceremony, didn't she? Did she? There you go. Okay. So I think it's possible I might be right. It has happened. So get along to Hay Festival, buy the tickets, turn up, have a look,
2: see what's what. Well, we must stop ourselves talking about music and gardening. We don't want to, but we must. Coming up on this week's show, real treat. James Shapiro, author of 1599 and the winner of the Bailey Gifford Prize's Winner of Winners, joins us to talk all things Shakespeare, and the TLS's consultant editor, Miranda France, on her new book, The Writing School. But first, way back in 2006, the American writer and academic James Shapiro published 1599, A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare, a minutely detailed account of a formative year in the playwright's life. It turned out to be pretty fundamental for Shapiro, too. The book won the Samuel Johnson Prize for nonfiction, now the Bailey Gifford Prize. Fast forward to this year and last week, when 1599 was crowned the winner of winners to celebrate the award's 25th anniversary, we are thrilled that James can join us now to talk about the very long life of this exceptional book. James, first of all, congratulations.
0: Thank you so much. I'm still in shock. (laughs)
2: well I spoke to you the morning after and it really was just beginning to sink in you're getting on for having nearly a week but it's still feeling pretty exciting and exceptional
0: it is I left the ceremony spoke with you that morning and then flew back to the states and went directly to uh, the rehearsal room the production of Hamlet you mentioned in your story and uh I should have been there the day of the prize and the morning after. And I walked in and they were all giving me the silent treatment. And I felt a little sheepish for having missed so much rehearsal time. And then they exploded with applause. And it was the sweetest, sweetest thing to be back at Shakespeare so soon after winning the prize. And it was, they greeted me as one of them and that felt wonderful.
2: Well, why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about that production? Because this book has had a very, very long life. I mean, way preceding even 2006. And we're going to talk about it. But one of the things that comes across is how focused you are on production and Shakespeare and production and always have been. And you tell us what you're working on now, what this production is.
0: This is a production directed by one of the preeminent Broadway directors, Kenny Leon of Hamlet. And it is going to be up and running at the Delacorte Theater in Central Park for free for two months this summer. And New Yorkers will line up at dawn to get tickets to see this play. And it's a great tradition started by Joe Papp in 1960 or so. And it was one of the formative influences on my life growing up in living in New York City. And this production is just going to be wonderful. I worked with Kenny for the last two years on the cut of Hamlet. British audiences, I think, are more inclined to sit for four hours through Hamlet. My own sense is closer to what Shakespeare described as the two hours traffic at the stage. So this will run about two and a half hours, which means cutting deeply into Hamlet. And one of the dangers of writing a book like the one I did on 1599, exploring the differences between second quarto and folio readings of the play, is that actors are all now familiar with it. So they're haggling with... I need you to restore that Q2 reading. It's it's a really fun experience.
3: <laughs> you don't want them to know so much so that they make you put it all back in.
0: Exactly. And, you know, you really have to be on your game to argue against them. So, <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure. 1599 was really written for actors as much as it was for anyone else. And to see that interplay now with actors who are so well-informed is really exciting.
3: You wrote about Hamlet for us, we were delighted to have your piece, last year about three productions. And because and you were working, weren't you? Because your most recent book was about Shakespeare in America and how his work has sort of always reflected, you know, reflected aspects of what's going on at the time. Does that go back to the, what Alex said about the primacy of the production that you say it's kind of dual thing, is it? That Shakespeare was very important to his time, but every production we do with him reflects our time.
0: For many Shakespeareans, I think the pleasure of reading Shakespeare in the study and going into a classroom and exploring it is is a great pleasure. That's never been enough for me. These plays only live in a particular historical and cultural moment. And for me, what is so important about that is I can read the newspapers, I can listen to podcasts but I don't really understand the cultural moment until I walk into a theater and see a new play or an old play brought up to speed, because these plays have a way of illuminating what's going on today, even as they had that capacity 400 years ago.
2: Jim, I hesitate to say this because it's going to sound, well, I've given this morning a very long lecture to my housemates, I, my husband and the cats, about how exactly I think last night's episode of Succession mirrors Hamlet. Oh, you may not be a succession <laughs> watcher, but do you think I'm right?
0: I am a devoted succession watcher, <laughs> not only for the quality of the writing and the intensity of the acting, but we're watching King Lear, part two, if you will, unspool. And I would hate to give any spoiler alerts for uh, Succession. But I do think Succession, insofar as it's dealing with contemporary issues like tech, like media, like the intersection of politics and corporations, is exactly what I'm interested in when I walk into a rehearsal room or walk into a theater. That's why these plays are still staged. And no knock on Ben Johnson or Decker or Kidd or Webster or other extraordinary playwrights of Shakespeare's day, but Shakespeare had a capacity to write plays that continue to connect over the centuries with the things that worry us.
2: Well, I feel Utterly vindicated. <laughs> I think you are. I think you are. Vindicated. The fact that I spent a you long are. time explaining what the murder of Gonzago was and how it related to last night's episode has, I feel now, I have, I have the imprimatur of Jim Shapiro.
0: I back you up a hundred percent.
2: I am winning. You tell the, the cats house. Oh, that you're I'm winning. Right. The cats know I'm right. But your own fascination with Shakespeare and your experience of him in performance, am I right to say you didn't immediately get on with him? when you were at school?
0: We read in ninth grade, as we call it here, at the age of 14, Romeo and Juliet, in class, in rows, in a deadening way. And I didn't get it. I didn't get even Mercutio's dirty bits that my classmates seemed to pick up on. And I swore I'd never study Shakespeare again in a class unless forced to. And I never took a Shakespeare class at university. And as I told you in our interview, in my late teens with my big brother backpacking around Europe, we ended up in London. And at that time in the 70s, you could see with a student pass a show for 50 pence, sleep in a church basement for 50 pence and fly over, thanks to Freddie Laker, for $100 round trip. And it was a drug for me at a very formative moment in my life. I never was a particularly good student, but I was a great theater goer and I was a great member of an audience. And the 70s and 80s, were before Netflix and Hollywood were luring the best actors from the stage to the screen, so you would see the superstar performers. And I went back, I held down some crummy job for June and July and scrapped and saved enough to fly over every August where I'd see... 20 or 25 plays in as many days, and after five or six years, and I'd only see Shakespeare or Stoppard in Shakespeare, and I'd seen several hundred productions. So that's where my education in Shakespeare comes from. And it is exciting for me to finally be back in rehearsal rooms so that completes the circle.
3: It's a very practical and rather unorthodox education in Shakespeare, isn't it? But actually it's very, it makes perfect sense.
0: It is, and it's always left me at something of a distance from my fellow Shakespeareans who are wonderful students from the ground up and have a much more, if you will, intellectual relationship to these plays than I do in certain ways. So I've had to bulk up on my scholarship, overcompensate in a way so that nobody challenges me on those things. And I think uh, that's probably reflected in 1599 as well. But what matters to me is that a young Jim Shapiro who's in her late teens or their late teens can go to London, can go to the Edinburgh Festival, can go to Stratford-upon-Avon and see plays for a reasonable amount of money and not run into the buzzsaw of cuts to cultural institutions in the UK as much as in the U.S., that deny them that experience that, for me, was so life-changing.
3: It's certainly not 50p anymore or even the equivalent of it, alas. But that's partly why your production is so important to you, presumably, because it's free, so it's for everyone.
0: It's free, and the uh, artistic director, Oscar Eustace, bounds out on stage or leaves a recording every night saying, this belongs to you my fellow citizens of New York. And there's always a cheer that he mm. at that moment.
3: Mm. Can I ask what that production, since you said they were always reflecting, you know, the anxieties of the time, what's this Hamlet reflecting then, do you think?
0: It's going to be uh, mostly actors of colour cast. It's set in 2021 in Georgia, the state of Georgia in the south, where Kenny Leon comes from. And Every line takes on a different inflection because Hamlet himself, Atu, uh, is black and uh, Ophelia is mixed race. Everything is, in a way, overdetermined. I'm asking myself is Laertes, who, like Polonius, is white, a little anxious about his sister going out with a black guy? I mean, everything changes mm. once you see it through the prism of contemporary. American politics and race. And uh, it's really exciting. And for me, it's exciting because lines that I'm so familiar with take on a different life in rehearsal.
2: Mm. Going back to 1599, I mean, I said at the beginning that it has a long tail. We obviously assume that there were many years of scholarship before you first published it in 2006, but actually it's Much longer than that, isn't it? It took some time to get off the ground, turned down for grants and so forth because panels just didn't get what you were trying to do. And also it was going against the general landscape of Shakespeare scholarship then, wasn't it? What were you trying to do?
0: I was trying in my overly ambitious young man mode because I began this book in the late 1980s which was a long time ago. And it took me over 15 years to read everything printed in 1599 and then scrape up some manuscript material as well so that I would immerse myself really fully in that moment, even before I turned to Shakespeare's plays in that year. And although the scaffolding, the argumentative scaffolding, is not really visible in the book or I don't push it too hard, I was trying to do three or four or five things at once. The first thing I was trying to do was say, we don't need another cradle to grave biography of Shakespeare. His first 20 years are not that interesting and mostly lost to us. His final years in Stratford are less interesting to me. I was also trying to challenge what I thought of and still do as the anecdotal basis of much new historicism or cultural materialism, as the field was called back then, where scholars would find an anecdote at the British Library or the Bodleian or the Folger Shakespeare Library and quickly rush to write a paper and deliver it at a Shakespeare conference. That was two bits and pieces for me. I was also trying to, in a naive way, I suppose, stop the conspiracy theory that somebody other than shakespeare had written these plays by showing in such concrete detail that shakespeare was actively involved in a playing company and this is how these plays were produced in this year i didn't realize that was a a fundamentalist movement almost a religious movement that was obtuse to factual evidence and i didn't realize that in the years i was writing this book That conspiracy thinking was growing and growing on both sides of the pond. But I was trying to do a lot of things at once. And most of all, I was trying to write a book for people that, like me, had been turned off to Shakespeare at an early point in their formative experience, and who could read my book and reconnect with Shakespeare. And the fact that what's staggering to me as I was flying home, I was thinking about this. Books of nonfiction just have a sell-by date. After three or four or five years, they tend to be superseded by another and better book. But uh, no one has yet dislodged 1599 from its perch, if you will, and one of those reasons was I didn't follow the trends that were circulating in the in the years I was writing the book that Shakespeare was a crypto-Catholic, that delving into speculative matters that are now embarrassing in a way to argue. So I did write a book that was grounded in facts and grounded in history that has stood up and along with winning the prize or the, the winner of winners award, that matters most to me.
2: Did you get... A lot of pushback at the time from other academics, I wonder.
0: It's a funny thing, and I'll probably try to answer that carefully, but uh, I've made a choice probably 15 or 20 years ago to dial down my engagement with going to conferences and fellow scholars, and uh, I've gotten into bed with actors and, and writers. Those are my communities I'm on the board of the Authors Guild. I was on the board of the RSC for a decade, but I don't really see myself as an academic. Yes, I'm a chair professor at Columbia University, but almost by accident. And (laughs) I've not made a career training doctoral students. I've made a career working with undergraduates and, and actors and writers. So one chooses one's communities and... I've never really felt an, all that comfortable in cap and gown.
2: That was diplomatically answered, wasn't it? Don't you think? Liz?
3: Very diplomatic. I just think it's lovely to end up as a chair professor by accident. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it wouldn't happen today. I think they would have given me the boot early on or if they had some suspicion of it. I'm not much of an actor. I never acted even as a child, but I acted the part of the professor just long enough to get tenure. And, you know, I've, I've been getting a lot of congratulations for winning the prize. And I would say 49% of them come from actors and theater folk just this morning from the RSC, and another 49% from the writing community, and about 1% from academics who are friends of mine, but I don't play that well in the academic world.
2: Well, you're playing well in the wider world, as you say.
3: Yes. Can we consider ourselves the writing community? Let's put ourselves there, yeah.
2: Well, we're not the academic community, Lucy.
3: No, we're not, no.
2: We're really not,
3: no.
0: The aspirations I had as a young person was not to publish in the leading academic journals, but to get something in the TLS or LRB. Those have been among the crowning achievements of my career. And writing for you, Lucy, has been terrific. You just give free reign.
3: The honour was ours, and actually I was going to ask you in a blatant plug where well, I'm going to put you on the spot and say is there, is there anything else going on that you know you would like to write about for us? You can't write about your own production, though you might want to write about how it's come about, as it were. You can't review your own production. I think we would have to draw the line there.
0: No, I never would. No, I know. Because that would be unforgivable to the company, but Ray Fines is, is doing the Scottish play and Kenneth Branagh is doing... Uh, King Lear, both in the UK and the oh, US. Yes. And I'm hoping that these will be landmark productions by you know, the finest actors of the day. Alex, you brought up Succession earlier. And one of the, the greatest productions of Shakespeare was Brian Cox as Titus at the Swan Theater in the early 1980s. So these actors have a way of capturing the moment. And I'm looking forward to both of those productions. And perhaps, Lucy, I'll get a chance to write for you about one of them.
3: Yes, please. Let's talk about that offline.
0: <laughs> I shouldn't be doing my commissioning during No, the you podcast. really shouldn't. I'm very sorry. Or me, my <laughs> pitching, but that's the way of <laughs> the world. We,
2: here we are. <laughs> right, I'm going to draw a line under what's going on now. And I'm going to say, before we let you go, Jim, I'm going to ask you to tell us about your next book, which you told me a little bit about, and it sent me scurrying away to find out more about the thing that you're writing about. Sounds fascinating, tell us about it.
0: Sure, and I thought you captured it perfectly in two sentences, uh, which I cut and pasted and will recycle when I try to describe my work. (laughs) Between 1935 and 1939, as part of uh, a works project to put the unemployed back into employment president roosevelt authorized a federal theater and it was run by an extraordinary academic but really somebody was more in the theater a little bit more like myself her name was hallie flanagan and she taught at vassar college in new york and in those four brief years a thousand productions were staged across the land 12,000 actors, including Orson Welles and playwrights, including Arthur Miller, were hired to be part of this project. And 30 million Americans, or really one out of every four Americans uh, alive at that time, went to see these plays. And you have to realize in the previous decades, the film industry had just eviscerated theater which was so vibrant in 19th century America. And this brought it back. And most of, two-thirds of the people who went to see these plays had never seen a play before. And the right wing, under the rubric of the newly formed House Un-American Committee, led by a really bigoted and charming guy named Martin Dyes, destroyed this enterprise and brought to an end something that was making America at that time a more communal, a more open and a more informed culture.
3: That's an extraordinary story,
2: which I haven't really heard. No, nor me. I had no idea. And I just started, of course, what it brings to mind, and I'm sneaking in another question here, is how utterly valuable programs like that are and how quickly they are pounced on by the right wing. That happening, the attack on the arts that's happening and the humanities, I know it's something you feel strongly about, all around the world, is heartbreaking to someone like me who, for whom it feels identity forming, the access to arts. And I think you probably think the same.
0: I feel that deeply. I call the book Playbook because this man Martin Dyes created the right-wing playbook, now well-thumbed and used by autocratic, uh, regressive people, leaders around the world. And his playbook beat the playbooks of the federal theater. And it's really a book about how the left devours its own, and then the right comes in to sweep up. I think it has, like Shakespeare's plays, 400 years later, the lessons of the 1930s, which were really the opening salvo in the cultural wars we have today, the federal theater fight has some powerful lessons for those of us who want to defend progressive culture at this moment. Mm.
2: I guess we just can't wait to read it. How long do we have to wait? No, yes, when is it? <laughs>
0: I'm getting there. I promised Faber in the UK and Penguin in the US that I'd work quickly and um, with luck, perhaps uh, fall of 2024.
2: Oh, that's in view.
0: That's coming up.
2: That's That's coming coming up. up. (laughs) yeah we can't wait that'll be wonderful but really what you need to do now is I guess stop giving interviews and being (laughs) congratulated and actually get some space to work and write and think as well as the productions that you're working on and we're going to let you do that Jim thank you so much for coming to talk to us I can't tell you thank you very very much
0: thank you Alex thank you Lucy really been a pleasure great talking
2: to come on the show, Miranda France joins us to talk about her new book, The Writing School. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode.
3: TLS Podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now there's a new book published this week, The Writing School, which is rather difficult to define. Part family memoir, part unfolding drama of what happens on a week-long creative writing retreat, part reflection on storytelling, memory, and the ethics of biography and autobiography. It's by Miranda France, who our devoted listeners will know from earlier podcasts, is the TLS's consultant editor on all things Spanish-speaking, as well as an award-winning author of travel writing and fiction. But we're not just log rolling here. We've got a review of her book in the paper this week. And so we're really delighted that she can join us to talk about the writing school today. Miranda, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for asking me. I'm always nervous about summing up people's books in front of the people who've actually written them. I hope I didn't um, do a terrible injustice by describing it like that. But it was quite difficult to sum up.
4: Yes, I suppose it is a bit difficult to sum up. I think you did it very well.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I wasn't trying to invite compliments, but yes, thank you. In fact, I have to say, I'm a bit worried about asking questions because you skewer some of the questions that authors and teachers get asked in your book, but I'm going to bravely do it anyway. I'm really interested in how your book took the form it does with its various different strands. Can you lay out the different strands of it for our listeners? Yes. Well, I think
4: for a few years I'd been interested in... The fact that people want to tell their story, that they want to learn to write and go on writing courses. And I taught quite a lot of these courses myself. I also teach people writing in other capacities, sort of not creative writing, but just useful writing for the NHS, for example. But this question of story quite often comes up in other contexts as well. So businesses and the NHS themselves, they're all keen to get people to know how to tell a story. So this concept of story was part of it for me. And then there was a, a sort of tragic family element, which was that my brother died I remember 40 years ago now by suicide. And of course, that's always been something very much in my mind. And a few years ago, a friend of mine said that he'd been sent a book of poems by the poet and novelist Adam Thorpe to review, and that one of the poems was about my brother. And this was a very extraordinary thing to happen to me i felt that that this part of my life that had been kept quiet for so many years i mean at home we very rarely spoke about richard that somebody else had written about it and in fact over the following months several other coincidences happened i came back into contact with my brother's best friend from school and another of his friends got in touch with me again quite by coincidence And so this part of my life that had seemed very quiet burst open again in a way. And to start with, that seemed, I mean, the the poem, for example, felt like quite a breach of confidence. I was quite angry about it. And I got in touch with Adam Thorpe and we wrote to each other. And that experience actually made me feel liberated in a way. I felt that there was no reason for this sad part of my life to be to be kept private, that it was a good thing that other people had known my brother and loved him and wanted to remember him and that this was all really quite a freeing experience rather than an upsetting one. So those two things, those two quite separate things had interested me and uh, really it was just before lockdown that I saw that the way to combine them was to set a narrative at a writing school and to use in a way that the idea of the exercises that are set on a writing course to tell this part of my own story. So they are the personal bit is sort of threaded through the writing course aspect.
2: Does that make sense?
3: Well, it absolutely makes sense. I mean, it makes perfect sense when reading it. I was just, I wondered
2: how that form came about. I guess what that, as you've described it there, of course, in other words, it's such rich sort of territory when we just think about writing and about writing about oneself and even creative writing in which personal elements might be used or just observations of other people. It's what makes really affecting and important writing That way, isn't it? That you have to have something at stake. But it can feel terribly transgressive sometimes. And that must come into teaching as well as in your own writing.
4: Yes, absolutely. It is very rich material and it is the stuff of life, isn't it? Mm. So you're right, it feels difficult to write about. You worry that it could be transgressive. And in my case, the fact that my parents had died certainly made it much easier to write the book when people are wanting to write about themselves on a writing course i think every situation is different it depends what's happened to them and their reasons for wanting to to do it and and how aware they are of the fact that they may not be successful and that in itself may be a difficult experience
3: the writing school part of it i mean it's fictionalized isn't it but is that that's kind of Drawn broadly from real life, your experiences, or is that completely fictionalized?
4: Yes, I mean, I must have taught more than 200 people, I suppose, over the years. And I created a sort of fictional group that represents the ideas and the aspirations and the fears and the experience of the people that I've taught. And some of the actual incidents are incidents that happened. I mean, one person in the book brings a very pornographic manuscript for me to look at, and that did happen to me about 20 years ago.
3: (laughs) Okay, it's really interesting, that one. I was going to ask about that, not whether it was real or not, but just because he writes about another course he's been on quite outrageously, Mm. and Mm. you very gently point out that the people that he's named might not be okay with being written about like that, or indeed at all, and this is a question that goes throughout the book, isn't it? I mean, not not to that extreme, obviously.
4: (laughs) I did mention to the person that he'd written about in his pornographic novel that she was in it and she found that quite amusing. Okay, that's good. (laughs) It wasn't very likely to be published. And if it did reach that stage, then at least I had advised that it would be a good idea to change the names. But yes, that was quite a surprising encounter.
2: Well, you just don't know what you're going to be given, do you? When you're running a workshop like that, a course like that, you are there telling people to commit to paper and share with you and possibly share with the group and more widely what they want to write you're just telling them to write what they need and want to write which immediately puts you in a position of you just don't know what you're going to get and if it is a pornographic scene for example you're immediately sort of on the back foot but it's what you asked for as well isn't it
4: well in this case I think he had arrived with a whole manuscript in his bag So we hadn't, we hadn't quite asked for it, but it's true that people are put on the spot. And I think people are very brave actually, because they're always asked to read things out in a workshop. And that's not something I've ever done. I've never read my, something that I wrote that morning
2: (laughs) out in in front of other people in the afternoon. I cannot imagine (laughs) anything (laughs) worse. I mean, I, I just can't imagine doing it myself and I've asked people to do it like you, but I can't imagine doing it myself. they do seem to
4: get something out of it don't they I feel that the group becomes a very ideally you know the group becomes a sustaining band of fellow writers and friends and they'll cheer you
3: on so I think people do do like that aspect of it Mm. in some ways it's a testament to the power of writing I feel like that runs throughout the book as well because as you said your reaction to the poem that you read about your brother is quite kind of electric and galvanizing isn't it it shows what power it has when you read and write about other people
4: yes electric is the right word that's how I felt I almost felt as if I'd been given a a jolt of life you know it woke me up partly because Adam's poem has got my brother speaking in it And even though I knew that perhaps he hadn't said the the words that, I mean, I think Adam has him saying, um, we have to change our lives, something like that. And um, I don't know if that's something that he said, but it, it seemed extraordinary to me. It felt as if somebody was speaking, as if I was hearing my brother's voice again for the first time in 40 years. And that is a testament to how incredibly powerful marks on a page can be. They can affect us deeply.
2: I totally understand, though, why in that rawness of grief and the, confu- the overwhelming confusion that always comes with grief and bereavement, that that should have felt so visceral to you, that you should have felt anger. I mean, it, writing in extremis always just prompts this sort of stew of emotions. We just can't divorce it from emotion, can we? No, hopefully not. If it's doing mm. its best work, then it
4: is a very emotional experience. And for me, writing the book during lockdown was a very powerful experience and actually a very enjoyable one. I loved writing it. I mean, it's quite jokey in lots of parts. So I I look forward to, you know, it cheered me up to be writing it as well, as well as thrusting me. It's (laughs) very
2: funny in place. There was one bit that really struck me. Well, there's lots of bits that struck me, but one bit I wanted to ask you about. And it's, you quote, a.l kennedy the novelist a.l kennedy says the person leading the workshop their power can be huge and although this i'm quoting directly although the scale is tiny the possibilities for wrongness and corruption can be appallingly extensive i thought that was such an interesting thought you know that people can be mocked people can be bullied much more entitled people can bring themselves forward it's a very interesting group dynamic isn't it and the job of the person actually doing the teaching is a very very delicate one I was just wondering how you sort of negotiate that well I think that's true and in a way we're not perhaps
4: quite equipped for all of the aspects of of the job that that are required I mean if you're teaching one of these residential creative writing shops you may also be in charge of various other aspects of the week you know being the I think I was the fire officer on one one of the weeks so yes the scope for things to go wrong and for I mean I must admit I don't think I have come across people bullying or mocking others in that context and I think if anybody had behaved in that way the others would quite quickly have have knit that in the bud but there is I have taught one course where somehow the chemistry just didn't come together in a very in a very healthy kind of way, and the group seemed to split into sort of two different parts, and people didn't like each other. And but that was definitely an unusual case. Almost always there's this wonderful alchemy where people do all support each other, and something bigger does come out of, of the experience that is useful to people on different levels, I suppose. I mean. Some people may get a, a book out of it or some articles, for example. Other people may just have had an, a, an eye-opening and interesting experience in the company of others for a week.
3: Mm. I was going to mention, as well as it deals very beautifully with these incredibly sad and difficult moments, but it is, it is also full of funny things very enjoyable I mean they're sort of right next to each other aren't they you seem to be absolutely outraged about eyebrow threading in public really like really quite really quite cross about that I'm so with you I'm so with you had it done in public no and you admit that you've got a thing for emeritus professors so yes
4: well I hope a few may be listening because
3: I was gonna say that's out there now. <laughs> emeritus professors
2: if you are listening please do write in (laughs) well read the book and then write in
3: (laughs) and also the bit about as you say that you're not just on those residential things there's a lovely bit about you trying to avoid everyone in the morning because you have to talk to them over breakfast well exactly and you're sort of running around the place trying not to see them who wants to talk about how to get an agent at half past seven in the morning
4: when you haven't had coffee
2: yet I mean it's well the person asking the question is desperate to this is the, (laughs) the problem I must say Miranda and I once taught one of these residential courses and there was a fellow tutor which was marvelous but there was one particular moment when we just wanted a little bit of time but we couldn't think where to go so we sat in my car And somebody knocked on the window of the car. (laughs) And at which point it was very hard not to just start the engine up and drive away, even though there were, I think, two days of it. You just thought, no, we can't. No, you are open to everybody on those courses, aren't you?
4: They might have sort of clinged to the door as you drove (laughs) off. (laughs)
2: Exactly.
4: (sighs) Yes, you have to be everything. You have to be sort of cheerleader, teacher, shoulder to cry on, fire officer washer-upper it's quite an exhausting experience
2: but very uplifting too yes it is I think one of the things that anybody in that situation I mean including the participants one of the, the sort of almost unspoken things is you alluded to there is that there are varying abilities you know and people come with very different ideas as you said And sometimes somebody will read out something and people will be spellbound or just or amused, or it will obviously be moving. Sometimes you see something, a real bit of talent there. You think this is you've really got something here. And other times you really don't. And the fact is that you have to give those people equal attention, weight, consideration, care. And it's that can be quite challenging, but I suppose it also does provide the energy in a way.
4: Yes. Yes. It can be challenging, of course. I think the thing is to persuade people that getting published is not necessarily the most important outcome for their work. You know, just to write in itself is worthwhile, to write something for yourself to look back on or or for your family. These are all quite... I mean, there is one person in the book who decides that she's actually not cut out for
1: trying Mm. to write
4: a book and she's going to put her manuscript back in the drawer. So that is also a useful purpose of the week to think about how likely you are to come away with something that you think you could publish and that you may actually prefer to write in a different kind of way for yourself or for other people.
3: I found that a very strong moment because and that seemed to me to be also about the question about how do you write about other people? you know, without hurting people or, you know, just, just how do you do it? Because she decides not to write it and it's a family story. And it doesn't mean she's not going to ever write anything, but she decides not to write this one. And that feels, certainly within the context of the book and the narrative that you've imposed on it, that feels like absolutely the right thing to do. And that's a strong thing to do in a book about writing to say, you know, to essentially say, well, okay, that's a very good and strong decision there.
4: Yes, absolutely, and she was potentially saving herself many months or years of grief and disappointment because disappointment is a large part of writing too, and if you can avoid it, then, then why not? Why not do something else?
3: But it was also, I felt that, I don't know, this is your book, you tell me, but it felt like she thought, no, I know, I've understood this story now, so you sort of helped her to understand the story, but I don't feel like I need to put that one out in public, as it were. I understand it myself.
4: Yes, I hope so. I think that the thing is that there's a a gap between people's expectations and the sorts of things that they want to talk about and their understanding of the demands of a successful piece of writing. And when I say successful, I don't necessarily mean one that's going to be published and make lots of money, but just one that holds together and makes sense to the reader and more goes into it than just having an interesting story to tell. The shape is very important, the flow of it, all kinds of things. So in a way, the job is to make people understand all of the extra demands of writing that go beyond just how interesting your story is or, or, or how moved you may feel to, to tell a story, not necessarily your story, maybe it's a fictional one. But all of the logistics and the, the technical
3: part of it are very important to convey too. And also the element, I think you mentioned this at some point, that if you do write something very personal to you, it is going to be discussed, if you are published, it's going to be discussed in the marketing meeting and yes. you're going to have to talk about it, which is kind of what you're doing. <laughs> yes. You have to be ready for that. That's all part of it, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you don't have to, but there is an expectation that you will.
2: Well, I felt that very strongly and very strongly that this was that, you know, you talked about realising that the way to write this book was to combine these elements and that this is what came through very strongly for me, that you'd discovered something about writing what you wanted to write about your own family and your own history through thinking about these fledgling writers, these people on, on the course, and that you understood what had to be done to write about yourself, the pros, the cons, the what you would encounter, the perils and pitfalls and all of that. And it came across to me as a, a very sort of importantly, I don't know if this is the right word, but a kind of humble book to write. You were saying, yes, I learned I learned stuff too.
4: Well, I'm glad it came across as humble. And I certainly have learned a great deal from teaching other people. And yes, I have, while I've been teaching them, I have been thinking about my own life. and. My own thoughts about writing about aspects of it, too I think what I felt very strongly was just a great sympathy for all of the people involved in in my own story, you know for my brother for my for my family and and a warmth and I think that's also something that I feel for people on a course. in fact, I've always felt it I've always felt deeply interested and Warmly towards the people that I've taught, and wanting them to to do the best that they can, and or, or to get as far as they can with with their ambition, and perhaps gently to suggest alternative routes if I think that the one that they have got their eye on is is not going to succeed. But really, my feeling was was of a great a great compassion for for people who want to write
3: and the stories that that we all want to tell. Mm, and that all comes through it's amazingly engaging and engaged that's how it feels as well that you're engaged with your your pupils just as you're engaged with trying to tell your own story it's I don't know if that's uh, warmly engaged humanly Good. engaged if that makes <laughs> sense
2: yes I hope so yeah that's the great lesson of writing isn't it that there has to be at some point some kind of emotional connection I mean it's very hard to write successfully and and indeed to read successfully without feeling that there's something like that at stake
4: yes and it's hard to pinpoint exactly how you create that connection but I agree with you that it's important to have it
3: we're doing the opposite of the sliver of ice in the heart (laughs) we're like we're melting it forget it (laughs) it's it's all about it's all about holding holding on and being warm and engaged
2: there's a way to do that isn't there That's that's not sort of Sentimentalism, I suppose. There is, it's, I suppose it's a matter of being truthful to an experience and to your feelings about it and to how you render it in language, which I guess is one of the hardest things about writing memoir.
4: Yes, I agree with you. And I think that I did very much want to be truthful. And I did feel that it was a truthful piece of writing. I find that humour is very helpful in providing the warmth, the warmth to melt the sliver of ice. I don't feel that I did have a sliver of ice. Um, no, I don't
3: mean you did. <laughs> I just meant we're going. No, no, the no, theory. I know, but yeah. Graham
4: Greene thought that we all should have one, didn't he? Or he thought yeah. perhaps that we all do.
3: Maybe that was just him. <laughs> Maybe it was.
4: <laughs> yes. I think, to be truthful, to try not to, not to strain for a particular effect, I think, is important. To try to find within yourself The way that you want to speak, the way that you feel you can speak truthfully, which is a difficult thing to establish often, especially if you feel that there may be people looking over your shoulder, you know, relations, for example. But a closed room in a locked down society (laughs) was definitely a good place to to be truthful in and to try to get to the to the nub of
3: of what I wanted to say. So um what's next? Are you going to do more travel or are you going to do more fiction? Are you going to do more memoir? Has it drawn, pulled you in a particular direction, do you think? Or is that it? Nice. Lie down in a darkened room, no more books. <laughs> That's always appealing. <laughs> Not for us. We want to read your stuff.
4: Oh, well, thank you very much. Well, I'm also a translator and I wouldn't mind doing a translation next while I sort of think about what I might write next. It takes a long time, I think, of having an idea knocking about in your brain before you begin to think actually yes this is something that I can work up into 200 pages so I'd love to translate something if any of those emeritus
2: professors (laughs) would like me (laughs)
3: i think that might be mixing business with pleasure but that's oh do you? you
2: do you know what we've already done that in this podcast haven't we did we we were talking to james Shapiro and Lucy oh yes tried to oh, commission yeah. him to write a piece for her. i mean <laughs> we've gone wildly off piece but as we all know that is the best way to approach life do not go down the trammeled routes and i i think i found that in your book which i found immensely enjoyable and immensely moving and mm. thought-provoking oh thank you miranda i really really did i didn't really know what to expect when i started it i just thought gosh this is this is very unexpected and very very interesting i really enjoyed it so mm. like, enormous congratulations oh thank you thank from you from yeah. it was wonderful as somebody hear. who hid in a car i speak as <laughs> someone who hid in a car <laughs> Yes,
3: it's really wonderful and I hope it all goes terrifically well. And Miranda, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you.
2: all we have time for this week our thanks go to james shapiro and miranda france and thank you for
3: listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy
2: we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me alex clark goodbye